Thank you, William. Yeah, it's good to see you all. We're in this study that is entitled, Teach Us to Pray. And it's from the words of the disciples. They saw Jesus praying and that's what they said. And that's the question, like how, how can we learn how to pray? How's it gonna happen? And you know, today we go to an interesting place. We begin with, you know, what is it that drives us to prayer? Like if you go back over your life, like one of those times where you were driven to pray. Or maybe a better question would be, what do you do when you feel helpless? What do you do when you feel vulnerable? What do you do when you are in trouble? In this study, we've been learning that about prayer and what um, I learned in the process of preparing is that word prayer actually comes from the same root as the word precarious. Precarious. Aha, that makes a lot of sense to me. We pray because life is precarious. It's just too much for us. Come on, let's be honest, right? And actually, you sort of learn from those people that that's when they're driven to prayer. That's when we are. For example, let's go back on the clock. Here's President Abraham Lincoln, who was of Christ follower. He said, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom seemed insufficient for the day. Or let's come to someone modern, Anna Quinlan. Maybe you've read, read, read something by her in her uh, autobiographical novel. She talks about being a 19-year-old. She's with her mom at the hospital in a cubicle. She's standing over her mom's bedside as her mom is receiving a chemotherapy drip. She said, but drop by drop, she prayed, God, please let it work, drop. Oh yes, I prayed in that cubicle and in the hallway outside and in the cafeteria. I prayed, please, 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 please. Or I think of author Tish Warren. You'll see a picture of her. She and her husband, his name is Jonathan, had dinner guests at their house, another couple, and she felt like she needed to excuse herself. She went to the bathroom and she discovered bleeding and the fear that she was losing her baby. She called her husband and she said, hey, can you help our guests leave? Can you do it graciously? He did. He rushed her to the hospital as the, she was being taken into the emergency room. She said to one of the nurses, we're going to pray. And she prayed, Lord, grant us a peaceful night and perfect end. Keep us the apple of your eye. Hide us under the shadow of your wing. Defend us, Lord, from the perils and dangers of this night. The Almighty and Merciful Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless and keep us. Amen. And one of the nurses overheard and said, that's beautiful. I've never heard that before, but she had memorized it from the book of Common Prayer. And she was praying. You see, prayer goes with precarious and today we're going to see the power of prayer to steady and strengthen us when we find ourselves in just such a place. Would you pray with me? Father, we put on a good show. We make it look great. 
Everything is fine, we tell the people when they ask us. We're doing great, Lord. Even when we're not, that's what we say. We've been primed to look okay, to act okay, and to say that we are. Because sometimes, Lord, it's too hard to get honest about where we really are and what's really going on. And so I pray that you would lead us to that place where we know we can come to you, where we are with you. And not only where we draw strength, but you give us perspective through Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. The psalmist prayed it like this, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. But you know, I read that and I thought, I don't do that. Maybe you don't. I think we live in such a self-sufficient age that it's like we're allergic to feeling, I need help. And we don't want to ask anybody. I mean, we have access online to all kinds of information, right? We can get what we need. We don't need to ask somebody. We have technology for that stuff. And we certainly don't want to feel needy, right? I, I knew a quadriplegic guy and, and I learned that he hated almost all of his caregivers. And it wasn't because they weren't nice people. They were the reminder in his life every day of what he couldn't do, how helpless he was. And they understood that. And that's sort of where we live. We love high places. I want to be where there's success and security and safety. And so we're allergic to this idea of need. And it keeps us from prayer. And it really keeps us from God. And it may be explain part of why we deny our emptiness. I mean, because if I'm helpless, I need a helper. If I'm needy, I need a need meter. As one author said, the easy way out of this problem of feeling our need is to discard the expectation that causes the problem by ditching the author himself. Because come on, if there's no God, even our neediness disappears, right? I know, yeah, bad things still happen and people, yes, they get cancer, but that's just the way the world is. That's just the way life is, right? So we remove ourselves as a result of that from the reality of the presence of God. And as a result of that, we, we miss out on the fact that our lives matter and there is purpose in our world. But you see, prayer fo forces us to get honest. I like what Thomas Merton said. I like the way he worded it. This is what he said. Prayer is an expression of who we are. We are a living incompleteness. We are a gap, an emptiness that calls for fulfillment. And that's just what we don't want to accept, but that's where we live every day. And I think because of that, we even mistake what maturity is in spiritual maturity. Our feeling is that as we get more mature, or if I become more spiritually mature, well, well, I'll pray less. I'll have more together. And the reality is real spiritual maturity opens my eyes even more to how much need I've always had. And it activates my prayer. And so the question is, as you have grown, do you find yourself praying more? Or do you find yourself praying less? Has your growing faith opened your eyes to the need that's deeper that you maybe weren't aware of before? So you see, that's a sign of maturity. Or does it make you feel more self-sufficient, like you don't need God? 
Now today we take the next step in our study on prayer to see the power of prayer to meet us in our neediness. And the, the book of Acts that William read for us on this morning, that you need to know a little bit about the backstory to know what's happening right here. Here's what happened. One day, this is after the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, when Jesus left his followers in Jerusalem, Peter and John went up to the temple to pray. And outside the temple, there was a place where people who um, had problems like were crippled or had blindness or physical issues could be there and they could um, beg because a part of Judaism is the giving of alms. And what better place than right outside the temple? So as they're walking in, there's a guy who has been crippled, as the scripture says, since his birth, who is begging. And the, and the guys look at him and they say, well, we don't have any money. But then they say, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the guy does just that. He pops on his feet and he's not just walking, but the text says he's dancing and leaping and praising God. This guy who's never been on his feet in his life. And you can imagine this stirs up a big commotion and people just rush over to this guy to see what's going on. And when Peter sees this happening, he's thinking, aha, this is a great time for a sermon, right? I can tell everybody what's really going on. And that's what he did. He started telling the message about Jesus. And before he got to the end of his sermon, maybe he talked for a long time, right? Already the temple guards are there and they take Peter, who is preaching, and John, who was with him, into custody. And they put him in prison. And the next day, they bring these two guys out of prison and they have them stand before the council in Jerusalem. Now imagine with, with me for just a moment, this is the same council that Jesus has stood before just weeks before this. And they know this, their lives are in the balance. These are simple guys from Galilee. They're nobody's in their eyes. And they know that their lives are in danger. And those leaders threaten them two times in that conversation. But there's so many people in Jerusalem who have heard the word that this man who was crippled from birth can now walk, that they cannot keep them. And so they release them from prison. And this is what we're told. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. All those threats they received. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So what do they do? When they go back, they don't say, hey, we need to get a political action committee together here or we need to run and hide. They don't do that. They say, no, we need to pray. You see, prayer was the action of the community. It's a living action. It's not in denial of what's happened. It's, it's facing that. And if you noticed how prayer brings people together, it was the community that got together. As Peter and John return, they must be exhausted and sad and afraid. They know that John the Baptist was murdered and they know what's happened to Jesus, but they need the support that comes through prayer. And as I think about that, I think, you know, we do too. To drive out our cynicism, to transform our fears. And you know, prayer is sort of like this. Prayer is like being that person who doesn't have so great a voice joining the choir. And because there are so many other voices, you sound great. And you also get to learn the parts because they're singing next to you. Prayer works like that. 
You know, see, I don't know if you know how God designed us. Kent State University did a really cool study some years back. You'll see the study notes on that in which they listened to conversations and they found that as two people or a group of people come together, they will all sort of move the frequency that is underlying in their conversation to the same tone. And the way they did this study, they went back to all the Larry King live interviews and they listened to hundreds of these interviews and no matter who he was with, whether it was the president of the United States or somebody else like a, an athlete, those conversations, they all found this low frequency that they would modulate to that was the same. And you begin to realize as we come together in prayer, even though our voices are different, we're listening to each other and we shift to find a, alignment with each other. And I think Jesus did that with his disciples. You see, he didn't just teach them the Lord's prayer, our father, which art in heaven. He prayed it with them. And so imagine hearing the voice of Jesus speaking to his father and inviting you to do the same. Their voice is finding the same wavelength as his own. And in the same way, we come together as we belong to Jesus and that's what happens when we pray. This experience of unity that we experience. As the apostle Peter said, he said, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, I'm with my brothers and sisters and we have one Lord and one faith and one baptism. Now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with praying alone. Do it, it's, it's good for us. But you will discover strength from praying with others. And so this means if you're experiencing trouble right now, ask somebody to pray with you. Maybe you don't even know how to put that prayer into words. But God will help you to do that through them. When you, when you need wisdom, find someone who will share that prayer with you. If you're afraid, go to the Father who loves you, but go with someone else who can help you put your prayer into words. That's how this whole scene, this beautiful scene begins. And I need to make a little note on prayer. When we're in worship and somebody is leading in prayer, the idea is not simply to listen to them pray but it's also for you to pray those same words silently yourself. That's how we become a chorus of people praying. You're adding your own prayer to the prayer of the whole community. And you see this prayer we have in the book of Acts, what's beautiful, it doesn't even tell us which person prayed this prayer. It just says they prayed it. And this is what they prayed. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Don't you love this? They're just racing to God in their prayer, like in the Lord's prayer. Sovereign Lord, they say. This is right up front. And God is sovereign. And what this means is when you feel weak and vulnerable, you need to see God's power. When, when I sense danger, I need to know that the Lord is God. And, and think about this. For, just think about fear with me for just a moment. Fear is an over-focus. You might call it a hyper-vigilance about what could hurt us. And by the way, often those fears are real. Not all the time, but often they are. This is something that places you in real danger, can hurt you or hurt somebody that you love. But here's the thing. Our over-focus distorts our perception of that. We don't see it as it 
really is. And it stokes those fears and it causes us to fight or flight or simply be paralyzed. And what prayer does is this. It means turning your focus to that which is far more powerful, to God himself. Yes, what lies outside our control, that's in God's power. He made everything. You see, prayer doesn't remove all those dangers right away from our lives. Instead, it enables us to see them aright so that they're not running our lives. They're not sovereign over our lives, but God has that place. Over the years, I shared about how when our third child, his name is Nathan, was born, he was deathly ill. He's one of those blue babies and how he had to be rushed in, you know, across into New York City. We were living in New Jersey to a hospital where he could get life-saving um, surgery. Very few people in our country could even perform this surgery. And I remember the day we went down to the, the operating room because I said, I'm not letting my son be operated on a doctor I've never met. And then walks in this little guy from Belgium. You gotta understand a baby's heart is the size of his fist. That's what my son looked like, is the size of his fist too. And so here this little guy from Belgium, he could tie a knot easily inside a little matchbox. You know, he could work on a tiny little heart. And after saying hello to him and then taking my son into the operating room, you know what, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I just went walking the streets of New York, actually the sidewalks. And I was so overwhelmed at that time. As I walked, it seemed like there was a crack everywhere I looked. There were cracks everywhere I looked. And I was consumed by the brokenness of things. Have you ever been in that place before when the brokenness of things just seemed, it's just, everything seems broken. And for a while, that was all that I could see. And then it struck me as I was praying that, that God held, holds everything in his hands. He is, he's greater than those cracks. He, he's the one who holds all things together. Yeah, there is a crack in everything, but there's God. Listen to their prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. This is what they're praying, by the way. Whom you anointed, they say to the Father, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see, God's sovereignty takes in the hard things. And you see, Jesus, though he went through the horrors of a trial and crucifixion and mistreatment, this also is in the hands of the Father. They, they realize, Herod and Pontius Pilate, they only did what God planned. Wow. If that's so, how can I not rest in him in this moment? You see, when Jesus went to the cross, the disciples, they couldn't see the hand of God. It seemed meaningless, really, for their, their master, their rabbi, to be arrested and mistreated and then killed in this way. But you see, now they know. God has had a purpose in this. He's sovereign. Do you know that God is sovereign in your life too? It's true. Let me tell you, there are always cracks. There are. They're, they feel like they're everywhere. But God himself is in control of those cracks. He fills them as well, and, and he's always working. And by the way, this story runs almost from start to finish in Scripture. Take Joseph, the son of Jacob. He learned this lesson because of his father's favoritism and a pride all his own. His brothers all just hated him. They sold him into slavery and counted him dead. He ended up in Egypt, and then he ended up in an Egyptian prison. And it looked, he, he looked likely to die. His life was all over. 
But God brought him out and made him second only to Pharaoh. And later, with a reunion of his brothers, you'd think he'd be filled with anger and he would want to get his revenge. But listen to what we're told, he said to them. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You know the amazing thing in the original text, the word but doesn't occur. It just says, you intended to harm me. You guys did this to hurt me. But God has used it for good. That's the sovereignty of God. He said, look at all the people whose lives are rescued because God did this. By the way, that is so hard for some of us to hear. Because some of us haven't seen the end. We don't know how God is going to work it out. We feel like we're in that Egyptian prison or we're still stuck. And we can't see how God is going to work through this. When things don't look this way and you cannot see this, to be reminded, they can't either, by the way, as they're praying, that God holds the future. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Didn't you love this? They're praying to the father and they quote scripture to him. Now, this is Psalm 2, and it is the passage in the Old Testament that's quoted the most in the New Testament. And the reason is because it tells about the day when God sends his anointed, the leaders here are going to reject him. They're going to do everything they can to oppose him and his ministry. And you think about this, you think, well, if God showed up, how do you think people would treat him? Yes, these words were fulfilled when the leaders turned against Jesus and had him crucified, but there's more. Now they know this word also applies to them. If it happened to Jesus, of course it's gonna happen to them. Here's what I find prayer does. Most important thing, it does this. It enables us to enter into truth that is large enough to hold our fears, our frailty, our vulnerabilities, and our doubt, even our weak faith. Let me say that again. Prayer allows us to enter into truth that is large enough to hold all my weakness, my frailty, my vulnerability, even my weak faith and doubt. And you say, well, what is that truth? It's the person of Jesus. You see, Jesus is the assurance that God works in the worst. They had seen the worst at his crucifixion, and this is how God brought our redemption. We can trust in him. Everything is gathered up in the purposes of God through Jesus. So what gives us the assurance that God will hear us? It's Jesus, that God cares. It, it's Jesus. You see, in other faiths, you would never have this assurance. You would never know whether God hears you. You could never know if he receives you. But Jesus has brought us to the Father so that we can know that we are loved. We know that God is working. You see, this psalm is a, almost a thousand years old when they pray it back to the Father. And they're living in the middle of it. And I think we are too. We, see the, we, we can see such opposition to the reality of Jesus in our world. And yet God is working here. You know, there's a story that's told in New York City. And it's really sort of cute story. It's about these people who are down the street one day and they looked over and they saw this mother cat trying to get with her kitten in her mouth, her kitten across a road. 
And so the cat, the, the cat would, the mother cat would take a step out in traffic, see the car and, and pull back onto the curb and keep doing this and pull back onto the curb. And at some point, it looks like that cat is never going to get across. And guess what happened? The, a policeman is at the intersection, sees the cat, goes out into traffic and stops traffic in both directions. Then the cat just scurries across the road with the, the, you know, its kitten in its mouth and in, into an alleyway. And you know what? That kitten, I'm sorry, that cat had no idea about the authority that the policeman had to stop traffic and help her get across the street. You see, you have no idea what God is doing in Jesus in our world. They have a glimpse of it because of the word of God, and so do we. But you need to know, he is working with this authority and sovereignty that controls everything in our world. And I know what you're saying to me, you're like, Pastor, you are desperate to explain this if you're telling us stories about cats and kittens. Come on, you gotta be kidding me. But it's true, it, it is as real as that. You don't see the sovereignty of God in your life, but you can know that God is sovereignly at work because of the love of Jesus for you. And you say, you say, okay, what's my part? If God is doing this, what am I to do? One of our members gave me lead singer of YouTube, Bono's autobiography. This is what he says, sort of deep into this autobiography. Surrender might be the most powerful word in the lexicon. I am persuaded by the thought that the only true way to be victorious is to surrender. The moment of surrender is the moment you choose to have con lose control of your life. The split second, I would say the lifetime, of powerlessness where you trust that higher power better be in charge because you certainly aren't. Newsflash, we're not in charge. The good news is God is. You discover your weakness and need and surrender happens in prayer. And by the way, that higher power for Bono is, is Jesus. He tells you, it is saying, Lord, we trust you. We know that you're in control and we look to you. And by the way, the whole name of his book is, is surrender because he says that's the story of his life. And it should be ours as well through prayer. So the believers pledge to trust the Lord, even they don't know where it's all going because they've seen Jesus and they know what's going on. By the way, prayer is not for building your willpower, but it's to help us rest in his sovereignty. This is what they pray. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Now notice what they do. After they quote scripture back to God, they recognize something is happening with scripture. And notice what they pray for. They don't pray, God protect us, don't let us be hurt. They say, Lord, keep doing the kind of work that you did when that crippled man was healed so that people will know you. Reveal yourself in the city as happened then. Show signs of your presence. I, I really think their praying has changed them. They might have begun in fear, but they're ending in confidence that God would work in them and through them. And by the way, we're told this place is shaken, but I would say they're unshaken. They're not shaken. It was the sign that God was among them. God was working. And I think this, this is what we need to know that we're communing with God, 
to rise from our times of prayer more convinced of God's sovereignty, more assured of his presence, and more determined to see God glorified. You know, there's, there's this really cool, cool scene by now. You know that I love Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But there's a really cool scene that comes very late in the trilogy, in the return of the king, that sort of set up from the very start. It happens when uh, the, the, the hobbits seek shelter in an inn called the Prancing Pony. And there is sort of a character in the dark. He's only known as Strider. You can see him in a travel-stained cloak, dark green cloth, and even a hood overshadows his face. They're darkening the room because we couldn't see it otherwise. And he helps the hobbit, but we're led to wonder about him. Is this a good guy or is he a bad guy? Is he really with them or not? And what we learn is there's a rumor that there's a king that's coming who has hands that can heal and who will unify the people again. And then near the end of the trilogy, this person, Aragorn, finally appears in all of his glory. Frodo and Sam and everyone else glimpse the true identity of, of Strider as the king of Gondor and the Lord of the Western lands. I love the way Tolkien explains it. This is what he says. When Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence, for it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days, he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. And then Faramir cried, Behold, the king. And for me, that's the power of prayer. Let me tell you why. You see, when we come to pray together, it's in those moments when we see Jesus and we realize the reality of the story we're in. We're like, this is it. He is the king and he's revealed for who he is and God in charge from, the, from walking the cracked sidewalks of New York City to the awareness of the glory of God. He is in control and we're his and, and we're secure in him. And I think that's when we may, you may see him for the first time for who he is. And I think this then leads us to bold living and, and to sharing his grace and, and a security with all the fears that we have. And so that's the question. What are you going to do with your fears? They're going to come. And how is God causing you to trust in his ways? What is he pushing you right now saying, you know, that's not going to be better until you surrender, until you surrender it to me. Would you pray together with me? Father, I pray that our eyes would be open. I pray that you would show us the truth of, of the big narrative that we're living in, that's yours. You're, you're telling the story of redemption in our world and that we could be called a people by you because we've received mercy and we can know your sovereignty, not only in the story of Jesus, but as it unfolded with Peter and John and in the church. And Lord, also as it's unfolding in our lives too. Father, we can't see it. And we feel like we know we're in the middle. Remind us that we can trust in you because of Jesus. Because the cross at the time that looked so meaningless, it seemed so without purpose became the very place where we've been redeemed. But Lord, that place where we are too may seem meaningless to us. We may wonder what the purpose is. 
and you're at work there too. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you that we can come to you, that we can come to you together. Lord, reveal yourself among us as you did with them. Pour out your Holy Spirit. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we join together in song again, um, just spend some time reflecting on who